But if you would, remain standing uh, with me and find your way to 1 John chapter 1. And I'd like us to stand this morning as we do from time to time in the honor of the reading of God's Word. So 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, and we will read together through uh, verse 2 of chapter 2. Would you read with me? It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us so well. And we rest in these moments in its authority and its sufficiency. Uh, that we have nothing in and of ourselves that we can offer and bring in these moments. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak by your word. That you would build up your people, your church, in these moments, in this generation, for your glory. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. I wonder if you can finish this phrase for me. If it looks like a duck and swims like a duck and quacks like a duck, it is a... Very good. Uh, this phrase, very simple, communicates something that creation and nature uh, tells us very plainly that you can identify something by its natural characteristics. This is not just something that creation tells us. The scripture speaks of this. Uh, scripture says you will know them by their fruit. Can a fig tree bear olives? Does a spring produce both salt and fresh water? John here communicates the very same truth that you will know who the people of God are by their fruit. And so as we consider last week where we were in verses 1 through 4, and this reality that there is truth that is certain and we can pursue it and we can know it in the word of life. Christ, the word of God, the gospel that has been made manifest to us. Now John begins to turn his attention to the reality of truth and the application that it has over our lives as his people. And in these verses that we just read together, we see very simply that the people of the God of light walk in the light. 
What exactly does all of that mean? Well, let's consider the passage again together. Look with me there at verse 5. It says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. John begins this section of the passage with a theological statement. And this is important for us because we need to understand what we think about God directly impacts everything that we do. That word theology means the study of God, or maybe in more simple terms, we could say it is what we think about God. And the truth is, is that every single person is a theologian. Every single one of us has thoughts on who God is. And our theology, our thoughts about God, impact everything that we do. It impacts how we manage our home, how we manage our careers. It impacts how we do missions and evangelism. It impacts how we worship as the church and we pursue ministry as the church. And so if we are going to be theologians, may we be good theologians. May we be rooted in the truth of who God is according to his word. And John has a message for us this morning that came to him and the other disciples from Christ himself. He heard this message from the Lord. As we talked about last week, the importance of Christ incarnate, God in flesh. John heard a message from the Lord and now he proclaims it to us as the church. And it's not a particular story. It's not one particular parable, parable or a certain teaching, but it is a general truth about who God is that is summed up in all of the teaching of Christ. And you see it there in verse 5, this theological truth, God is light. In other places, John says that God is Spirit. He says that God is love. And these three things, God is light, God is spirit, God is love, all highlight the uniqueness of God. But here, in particular, he says God is light. What does that mean? Well, the word light throughout Scripture emphasizes several important qualities and characteristics about the nature of God. First, the word light in Scripture is used to speak of the splendor or glory of God. So we see in the Old Testament the pillar of fire that led the nation of Israel by day. This was a manifestation of God's glory. Or you think about Moses coming down from the mountain after his encounter with the glory of the God and what was happening to him. He was glowing with the light of God. The, the psalmist says that God is clothed in splendor. He is clothed in light. So light emphasizes the splendor and glory of God. Light is also used in Scripture to speak of the truthfulness of God. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4 where he says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel, the truthfulness of the gospel. God is glorious. He is truthful. The word light also speaks to the fact that God is the giver and sustainer of life. In, in his gospel, John says this, In him was life. And the life was the light of men. Later in John chapter 8, he quotes Jesus as saying, He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this word light communicates these three things about God. His splendor, his glory, his truthfulness, the fact that he is the giver and sustainer of life. But there's something else that, 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 that John has in view here more specifically, and that is the purity of God that this word light communicates. That God is perfectly perfect in all that he is. He is holy. 
He is righteous. He is good in all things. There is nothing wicked or sinful in God. And this is emphasized in what he says next there. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He is the holy, one true, living creator God of the universe. And so why is it that John starts here with this theological truth that he communicates in these three simple words. God is light. Well, in order for us to understand our standing before God, and as we'll see here in a moment, there are two types of people, those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. In order to recognize where we stand, we must first understand who this creator God is. More specifically, the fact that he is a holy God. Oftentimes in sharing the gospel with people, when you come to the prospect of hell and, and, and the eternal punishment of hell, you will hear someone say, well, that kind of seems like a steep punishment. I've never murdered anyone. Got my hands going there. Satan's trying to distract us. The, the person might say, that seems like a steep punishment. I've never murdered anyone. I've never committed adultery, and God is going to send me to an eternal punishment in the lake of fire? That seems pretty steep. What they don't understand is not just this, the reality of their sin, but who their sin offense is against. It is against a holy and righteous God. And we can't blame the lost person for not recognizing this because of the simple fact that they do not know God and they cannot recognize the fact that he is holy. But we as the church, on the other hand, as Christians, must be resolved in this truth that God is holy. Because if we do not start with a holy God, there is no one for us to be held accountable to for our sin. There is no responsibility then for us. And so we should not be ashamed or afraid to speak to a lost and dying world about this fact that there is a holy God in heaven and each of us will be held accountable to him. How else will they come to understand the offense of their sin if we do not first begin with the fact that God is light. So not only should we be resolved in this truth in our evangelism, but we should also be resolved in this truth as the church, because as John says here, this truth has implications on our lives. Continue with me there in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Here in these verses, we see that God's people walk in light. If it is true of God that he is the God of light, his people will then walk in that light. God is light. His people, too, should be of the light. 
It's here that John begins to answer the question that he's going to answer for us throughout the letter of how we can know with certainty that we are saved. And so later in chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know with certainty that you have eternal life. How can we know with certainty that we're saved? How can we know with certainty what he says there at the end of verse 7, that the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin? And he begins to answer this question first by making one of his first of many distinctions that he makes here in the, in the book of John, uh, 1 John to distinguish between those who are in Christ and those who are not. And you see it very simply, very plainly there in the text. It's what? Those who walk in the light and those who walk in the darkness. And so he uses a test here, three questions, three tests of false claims that show that one is not in the light, but rather in the darkness. And, and, and you can see these three tests of false claims for yourself. The first one's there in verse 6. To say you have fellowship with the God of light, but you walk in darkness. What does that mean to walk in darkness? Well, in order for us to understand what it means to walk in darkness, we first need to understand what it means to walk in the light, as he says there in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, how do we as created, fallen, sinful beings walk in this light of this holy God? We are, we are not full of truth. We are not the creators and sustainers of the world. Those are things that are unique to God. So how do we walk in the light? Well, John helps us in that at the end of verse 6 when he says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So walking in the light means walking in the truth of God's word. And we've talked about before about this word walk and how it's used in scripture. In fact, just a couple weeks ago in Psalm 1, we, we talked about the righteous man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. That word walk means a manner of life, a, a lifestyle. So walking in the light means that our lifestyle, our manner of living is one where we submit to the truth of God in everything. That we don't just say that we are in the light, as, as John says here, but there is evidence of the light manifesting itself in our lives. And so James speaks of this in his epistle when he says, Do not be hearers of the word only, but be doers of the word. He goes on to say, Faith without works is dead. And so doers of the word are the ones who give evidence of having fellowship with the Father, of having eternal life, of having forgiveness of sins, of being in the light. And so if walking in the light means walking in the truth, then we come to answer the question, what is walking in darkness? Well, it's quite simply the opposite of that. It's not walking in the truth. Not walking according to God's ways, but walking according to our own ways or the ways of the world. So very simply put, the first test that he gives us here in verse 6 is this. To say you are a Christian, but to live your life just like the world. If this is true of you, you are a liar and are walking actually in the darkness. The second test that he gives there is in verse 8, where he says to say we have no sin. Now, this is not so much a denial of sin's existence in a person's life as it is a denial of the results or outworking of sin in our lives. 
to deny sin's power over us or the consequences of sin or the very nature that we possess is a sin nature. And this goes back to the importance of what we talked about at the beginning of considering who God is. If we don't recognize first that God is holy, we most certainly will not recognize the severity of our sin and its offense against him. And so hopefully you, you, you know by now my love for uh, the way of the master uh, evangelism method. And there are many methods and ways that we can preach Christ and, and should. And, and I love to give you as many tools as possible. But this is one in particular that I love. And many of you went through the, the way of the master training this last summer. And I know many of you watch uh, Ray Comfort videos on YouTube, the one who, who started this, this method. But, but you, you're probably familiar with the questions by now because I've said them enough. But when you start that gospel conversation with someone, you say to them, would you consider yourself to be a good person? And always, what do people answer? Well, yes, I consider myself to be a good person. And so what do you do? Well, you, you bring the Ten Commandments before them to test their hypothesis. And so usually you just use three. Would you, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever lusted after someone and commit adultery in your heart? And at each of those questions, the person most always says, well, yes, I've lied. I've stolen, committed adultery in my, in my heart. And so the next question is, would you be innocent or guilty? Most always people will say, well, I guess I'd be guilty. Would you go to heaven or hell? Well, I guess I would go to hell. Does that concern you? And sometimes people will say, well, no, it doesn't concern me. Sometimes they will say, yes, it does. And so they'll recognize their sin, but what do you do in that conversation? You take them to the cross. Christ died in your place at the cross. Believe in him and be saved. And why do people not then believe? Because they identify that there is sin in them, but they deny the reality of its effects in their life and the offense that it is against this holy God. We do not want to measure ourselves by the rubric of God's law. We don't like the idea of being considered a sinner. We want to measure ourselves by our own standard. And, and, and this was true of, of, of Gnosticism. Again, what John, this false teaching that John is facing the infant stages of in his day as he writes this letter, the Gnostics would have said that sin was not a real thing. But this is not unique to the Gnostics. This is true of everyone. We deny that we are morally responsible before a holy God. And John says to deny this is to be deceived. The third test that he gives is there in verse 10 to say we have not sinned. And that is very similar to the test there in verse 8. But the words are a little bit different. And here what we see in verse 10 is a more blatant denial of sin. To say we have never sinned. This is why he says this declaration isn't one that just makes you a liar, but it is one that makes God a liar. What has God said of sin? He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is a denial of sin, but also a denial of our need for a Savior. So we look at these three tests of those who are walking in the darkness, and then we compare it in verse 9 to those who are walking in the light. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us. Here's the ironic part about this passage in these two people, those in light, those in the darkness. Those who are in the darkness, those who are in sin, do not acknowledge their sin. But those who are in the light not only acknowledge their sinful state, but they confess it before the Lord. 
it's important here for just a moment for us to consider confession and, and what we're talking about here. There, there is a confession that takes place in salvation. And so in order to enter into the light of the gospel, we must acknowledge the very thing that puts us in the darkness, which is our sin. And, and so when we put our faith in Christ, we also are repenting of our sin. We're confessing and acknowledging our sinful state before a holy God. And when we do that, we are justified. Why? Because he is faithful and just in our confession to forgive all of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We believe that when we come to faith in Christ and we make this confession before him, that all of our sins are forgiven. Past, present, and future. But there's also a confession that is essential to our sanctification, our growing into the image of Christ, walking in the light. And so, so we affirm that our forgiveness is not due to ongoing confession, but rather we keep confessing our sins because we have what? Forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So this, uh, many of you come from a, a Catholic background. This is very different than the Catholic view of confession, where the, where the Catholic Church teaches that confession to a priest is necessary to have your sins forgiven. Church, we believe that the Bible clearly teaches that when we believe in Christ's work at the cross, it is sufficient to cover all of our sins. There's nothing that we can do to contribute to that. Christ has conquered sin and death once and for all. And so the question then is, if at that moment of salvation, that, that, that moment of justification, when we confess our sins, if all of our sins are forgiven, forgiven, the question naturally then is what? Why do we go on confessing our sins in the Christian life? This is a great question and a question we can answer by understanding what the word confess means in verse 9. The word confess means this, to say the same thing. So as we walk in the Christian life and we are justified and we do no, no longer bear the, the burden of sin, but we bear Christ's righteousness, but we struggle with sin in the Christian life, we walk through the Christian life, we walk in the light acknowledging and affirming our sin's offense against God. That every time we sin, even as Christians, it is primarily against this God of light. So when we confess, we are acknowledging and affirming and agreeing with God of our offense. It's not a confession of fear of being caught, but it's that heart of contrition, a godly sorrow of sin and a desire to walk in holiness before him because he is holy. And what we will find is as we walk in the light and we confess our sin daily to the Lord, we begin to hate our sin. We begin more and more to find freedom from sin. And so look what he says there in verse chapter 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not Sin. Do not miss this. There is a call in the Christian life to be free from sin. Those who walk in the light of the gospel humbly acknowledge their sin daily and they pursue obedience and holiness before a holy God. And this is the crux of the passage. If you say to be in the light, you are in the light of the gospel. If you are a follower of Christ and you represent the God of light in this world, you will walk according to his ways in obedience to him. There's this, this false 
view of the Christian faith known as antinomianism, and, and I don't expect you to remember that word, uh, but, the, but antinomian simply means against the law. So there's this belief that Christians are free from the demands of the law. And so you see this encapsulated in Romans 6 when Paul says, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No, salvation isn't just a get-out-of-hell-free card and we can just live how we want. No, there's an expectation of obedience in the Christian life. And so you, you might see this in baptism. There, there might be someone who's been saved for many years and, and they've, they've never been baptized. And someone says, hey, well, you should be baptized. And the person says, well, uh, you know, I, I, if I were to die today... I would go to heaven. Uh, my, my salvation is not based on baptism. Baptism is not essential for salvation. And although that might be true, the call of baptism is one of what? Obedience to our master. And so don't miss this. There's not just a desire to obey Christ in the Christian life. This is most certainly true. We, we have a desire and, and we find joy in the law of God. But there is also an expectation that we obey the commands of Christ. And so what I'm about to say might sound strange to you, but we have to preach the law to ourselves. Now, when we think about evangelism, we most certainly must preach the law to sinners. In order for them to see that they are sick and need a physician, we must show them their sin in the light of the law so that they can see their need for a Savior. But just as we preach the law to a lost and dying world, we also in the Christian life preach the law to ourselves. We preach the commands of Christ to ourselves so that we can walk in obedience to them. So again, Paul in Romans 6, shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? By no means. God says in Leviticus 19, be holy as I am holy. We see this language in the New Testament of putting off the old self and putting on the new. And really, we just go to verse 3 here of 1 John chapter 2 that we'll look at next week, and we see this summed up very well. When John says this, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. There's an expectation in the life of the believer as they walk in the light to obey the commands of Christ. And when we fail in that endeavor, and we will, as we'll see here in a moment in the passage, we confess our sins. We confess our sins before God. And, and when we confess our sins, we're not just doing it in a general sense. Lord, I am a sinner. But, but something the Puritans help us in in their teaching and their preaching is to show us that it is good for us to confess specific sin before God. As the Spirit of God within us and the Word of God before us convicts us of error in our lives, that we would name it before God, that we would acknowledge it before God. And then there are times when we need to confess our sins to one another, to encourage one another and spur each other on in the faith or to, to correct a wrong that has been happened. But we, we confess our sin, but we do that in this desire of obedience to our Master. Now, just as we put ourselves in danger of not preaching the law to ourselves, we also put ourselves in danger of only preaching the law to ourselves. Don't miss this. We most certainly preach the law to ourselves, but church, we also preach the gospel to ourselves. Because God's people walk in the light of the gospel. Continue with me in chapter 2, verse 2. He says, but if anyone does sin... 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. I I love the phrase there, but if anyone does sin. It it almost seems at the surface level that he's making an argument that it is possible to not sin. Which would contradict everything that he just said at the end of chapter 1, that there is no one who is without sin. All of us have sin, and if you say otherwise, you are a liar. He's actually using this phrase to show us that sin most certainly will continue to happen in the life of the believer. A very literal way to translate that phrase, but if anyone does sin, is to translate it this way. If anyone sins and it will happen. Here is the reality for us in the Christian life. We will continue to struggle with sin because we still live in a fallen flesh. In a fallen world, we will never be sinless in this life. We are always fighting against the old self. And so what do we do when we sin in the Christian life? Well, we already mentioned what he says there, to confess our sins. But primarily what we need to do is to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. Preach grace to ourselves daily, reminding us of who we are in Christ. What is the gospel? What is grace? Who are we in Christ? Well, he tells us there, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love this word advocate. That word advocate is literally speaking of a defense attorney in a courtroom. We've all seen the courtroom drama in a movie or a TV show or maybe even one that actually happens on the television. When someone is convicted or is charged with a crime, there is someone who comes to their aid, an advocate, a defense attorney. And this is what Jesus is. He is the advocate. He is the defense attorney who comes to our aid. And so follow this. There is this cosmic courtroom scene that's unfolding before us. And Satan stands as the accuser. God is the holy judge, and we are all on trial for our sin. And this advocate, this defense lawyer, Jesus Christ, comes to serve and aid those who put their faith in him. And when they put their faith in him, he comes and he does something that your your typical defense attorney doesn't do. A typical defense attorney is going to say, what my client is innocent. But Christ does the opposite. He comes before the holy judge and he says, my client is indeed guilty of breaking the law in its fullest extent. But here's the thing about Christ as the defense attorney. He always wins. He always wins the the argument on your behalf because the case that he makes on your behalf is by his work on your behalf. You see it there. He says he is the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation means satisfaction or to satisfy. Christ, as the defense attorney, never loses a case because he has satisfied the demands of God's justice at the cross. God is a just and is righteous in in, in his justice, and, and his justice must be satisfied. 
As a good and righteous judge, he cannot sweep sin under the the cosmic rug in his cosmic living room. Someone must pay the price, and Jesus satisfies it at the cross. He pays the penalty in our place. And notice the the language that John uses here that we we see in the English as well. He doesn't just offer propitiation. What does verse 2 say? He is the propitiation for our sin. He is alone what satisfies God's wrath that is set on us as sinners. But finally, he says they're not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Why does John add this tag, especially they're not for ours only? Well, first and foremost, he is not speaking of what we would call universalism, meaning that Jesus' death on the cross automatically sends everyone to heaven. And there are many places in Scripture that we could go to affirm this as true, but we we need to go no further than the very context of the passage that we find ourselves in this morning. John says there's two types of people, those who are in the light and those who are in the darkness. Those who are in the light inherit eternal life with Christ in heaven, but those who are in the darkness, who die in the darkness, will inherit eternal death in hell. It is only those who believe in faith and repentance in the propitiation that Christ accomplishes at the cross who will be saved. So what is he speaking of? Well, there's two things in particular that John has in mind here when he says not for ours only, but also for the sins of the the whole world. First of all, he, he is highlighting here the universal fellowship that we have as the church. If you remember last week, he, he emphasizes fellowship, and he will do this uh, throughout the letter. And he, he wants to talk about the fellowship they have in their local church, but he also emphasizes the fellowship we have with the church universal that we just read in the Hebrews 10 passage uh, just a moment ago. That in the midst of our suffering, we find joy in the fact that we're not alone in are suffering. There are other brothers and sisters in Christ right now who have been worshiping the Lord on this Lord's Day. And so maybe you've been overseas and you've had a chance to worship with the church overseas, or, or maybe you've just visited some family members at Christmas time and you've gone to their church, and there is this instant connection, this instant fellowship that we have with brothers and sisters in Christ around the world that we find in the gospel. And so this plays into his third letter that we'll come to in a few weeks, Third John, where he talks about the unity of the work between the Jews and the Gentiles. We know the tension of the Old Testament between Jews and Gentiles. And what does Christ do? He comes and he breaks down that dividing wall between the Jew and the Greek. And this leads to the primary reason that he says what he says there, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. He wants to emphasize to them that the gospel is for every nation and every tribe and people throughout every generation. Why is this important? We go back to the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed, as I mentioned last week, that there was this secret hidden knowledge to be found. And once you found it, you kept it to yourself. And what John wants to show the church here and to show us today is the gospel's global view. The gospel is not something to keep to yourself, to hide under a bushel, as the song says. It is something to be heralded to the ends of the earth. And Paul says so much in Romans chapter 10 where he says there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is for all people to hear. 
And anyone who believes in the work of Christ at the cross will be saved. When Christ goes to the cross and he makes propitiations for our sins, he accomplishes there at the cross exactly what the Father intended for him to do. To redeem a people for himself from every tribe and tongue and nation throughout all generations. And don't miss this. This is so glorious. This unchanging gospel message has come to us today in the year 2024. So when he says they're not for ours only, he has in view us, the church today, who have come under this work of Christ at the cross. And so we walk every day of the Christian life in view of this truth. Church, we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. And the wrath of God has been satisfied once and for all by the work of Christ at the cross. In the Gospels, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they have a a legalism problem. They are clean on the outside. They're doing all the, the righteous religious things, but what is their problem? On the inside, they are unclean. Their hearts are are dead. And so they're they're preaching the law to themselves really well. They're mastering the law, and it produces in them this arrogance and pride. To one point, we see a Pharisee in the gospel standing on a street corner next to a beggar, and he says, what to God? Thank you, God, that I am not like this man. What arrogance. And if we're not careful in the Christian life, we simply preach the law to ourselves, and we start to think That it is the stuff that we do that satisfies the wrath of God. And we forget that the work of Christ on the cross is what satisfies the wrath of God. So there's this this threat of arrogance and pride being built up in us. I, I, I go to church every week. I read my Bible every day. I pray every day. I am killing it in the Christian life. Just like the Pharisees. But there's also this threat when we only preach the, the, the law to ourselves that when we stumble and fail that we think, well, God is going to spit me out of his mouth and we feel like we can no longer function in the Christian life. Hear this. The certainty of your salvation, Christian, is not based on your performance, but Christ's performance on your behalf at the cross. And so the goal of the Christian life is not perfection. The goal of the Christian life is certainly obedience, as we've already talked about. Preach the law to yourself. But primarily the goal of the Christian life, walking in the light, is learning to become more and more dependent on our advocate in everything that we do. So hear this today. You are going to mess up. You are going to sin. Preach the grace of the gospel to yourself. On those days when you, you're just, you find yourself failing over and over again and, and, and you're, you're yelling at, at your coworkers and you're yelling at crazy drivers on 1604 and you're yelling at your kids and nothing's going right, and you forget to pack your kid's meal, and, 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 and you, you forget to help them with their homework, and you forget to help get them to practice, and before you know it, fear sets in, and your mind goes to this, I'm going to mess them up. 
And my kids are going to go live in the jungles of South America and work for the cartel. (laughs) When we expect perfection out of ourselves, we will be miserable. Preach the gospel to yourself. This life and walking in the light is not dependent on your perfection, but Christ's perfection on your behalf. Rest in that. But also preach the gospel to those around you. Uh, Newsflash, your kids will not be perfect. There are no perfect children. And when we expect our children to be perfect, and all we do is preach the law to our children, parents, they too will be miserable. When your kids mess up, point to the mess up. Hey, look, we've got to do better. We're pursuing obedience in the Christian life. We are pursuing excellence in the Christian life. But guess what? Nobody expects you to be perfect in this house. Because there's nobody perfect who lives in this house. Preach the gospel to your children. Preach the gospel to that neighbor who harasses you and is a non-Christian and despises you. Don't expect them to be perfect of all people because they are lost and dying in their sin. Show them grace. Preach grace to them. But also preach grace over the people of this local church. That the people who are gathered in these, uh, the, inside these four walls today, although we're not bound by four walls, we are represented here this morning. And if you are look, to look around the room this morning, myself included, you are going to find people who will fail you, who will let you down, who will hurt you. And yet we don't gather here today because we're perfect. We gather here today because we are redeemed. There's a perfect Savior who has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. And so we don't like to talk about this in our day, but there is no perfect church. You are going to have your feelings hurt. Show grace to your brother and sister in Christ. Pursue peace in light of this truth. We have an advocate with the Father. And we've gathered here today in a hospital for sick sinners like you and I, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So there's a God in heaven, and He is holy, and He is true, and He is perfect. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is light. And if you are in Christ today, the evidence of that is that you will walk in the light of the gospel. There are those who walk in the light, but there are also those who walk in the darkness. This is the sobering reality of the passage this morning. There are some who say, I walk in the light. I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but if you're honest today, your life gives testimony to something else. My prayer for you in these moments is that you would allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God to convict you and show you your standing before Him. Dear friend, if you're walking in the darkness today, if you're walking in rebellion against this holy God, here is the good news. There is a God in heaven who saves And there is this one, Jesus Christ the righteous, who came to this earth and lived a sinless life and made propitiation for sin at the cross. He satisfied the wrath of God in your place, and all you have to do is believe in him and be saved. Confess your sinfulness before him and be saved. May that be said of you today to his glory. Let's pray.